0: Well, good morning, Fellowship. How are you today? Dry, right? We're dry in here. Very good. I don't know how many of you had, is it called pilgrimage tickets? But man, that would not be fun today. Okay, well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Mike. Uh, I've been a member at Fellowship Bible since uh, August of 2002. Uh, So when my beautiful bride and I moved here from California and went church shopping, we found Fellowship, and we've been members ever since. Uh, We're regulars over at the uh, Brentwood campus, uh, and I'm a recent addition to your elder team here as well. Um, I want to just acknowledge and kind of give thanks for the Who Youngs that Eric was uh, reminding us of just a moment ago. We were praying for them at our elder meeting uh, just this past Wednesday, and we were, you know, I'm grateful to hear that they'll be here tomorrow. you need to know that, as they were making plans to exit the country rather quickly, that they were also getting reports that people who had the same plan were being detained at the airport so uh, you need to understand that you know we we are blessed that we we minister and we live in a country where you know, we were founded as a Christian nation. I acknowledge that we're quickly becoming kind of a post-Christian nation, but uh, we don't worry about getting arrested because we're a believer about sharing the love of Jesus. That's a, It's a different reality in other parts of the world, and so we really have to be committed to holding up in prayer our brothers and sisters who do take that burden upon their shoulders. And so I'm grateful that they'll be here tomorrow, and we'll look forward to having them back. All right. Um, As you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12, I want to segue in with just a bit of a backstory if I could. Um, On February 2nd, 2002, at about 2 p.m., I stood at the front of a church in a really fancy outfit and a beautiful girl walked down the center aisle on her father's arm and they walked towards me at the front of this church and I received my bride on that day. Uh, our wedding invitations that went out said on 020202 at 2, Mike and Lynn will be making a decision before family and friends that will forever alter their lives. If I ever forget my anniversary, you can appreciate I'm a dead man, right? Um, but that was a, an incredible, incredible day, and uh, after we got married, Lily just a few months later, we would move to Nashville. We took over a business here in Tennessee, um, and we've been here ever since. Um, my wife has done some really cool presents, uh, anniversary presents for us over the years. One of the things she gave me on our ten-year anniversary was a little booklet. I should have brought it this morning to show you, but uh, she assembled some some uh, some of our story in pictures. And the title of this booklet was "What Was and Is and Is to Come." And kind of in a Charles Dickens, kind of uh, a Christmas carol type approach, she had assembled photos of our relationship early on, our relationship present day, and then kind of looking forward into the future, what she thought we would look like as we got older. And it had pictures of cars we drove then, cars we drive now, cars we would have then, houses then, houses now, children, and so forth. It was kind of a fun little walk through memory lane, look at present day, and then what the future might hold as well. And I want to share some of those with you this morning, because it kind of cues up what we're going to be looking at today. In uh, Ecclesiastes 12. So, in what was the what was section of this booklet? uh, My beautiful bride put up some photos from our wedding day. I want to share those with you here. I was a happy, happy man. Look at that beautiful bride, luckiest guy on earth. So that was February 2nd, 2002. And then uh, there's also a picture in here that's not wedding day, uh, but not super long afterwards. I want to share this with you as well, and I want to kind of explain the second image. Go ahead and put it up. Um, When we were expecting our first child, I felt a need to empathize with my wife in very tangible ways, and as she started to gain weight and her clothes no longer fit, I took it upon my shoulders as a quality husband to increase my consumption of ice cream, to try to maintain pace with her, um, just so she wouldn't feel alone. Um, so that's uh, as we're expecting our first child. And then uh, as we built our family, here's a picture of what is. So in uh, December or sorry, February 2nd, 2012. This over here on the left screen is what my family looked like on that day, 10 years into our wedding or into our anniversary, which is awesome. This is a slightly more recent photo here. I just want to show you what my kids look like today. And that sort of represents what is. And my wife had this, uh, she had to go online to look at, you know, what would she and I look like as we got older? And as she shopped the internet, she found this photo and she thought this was appropriate for what would be to come for us. So nothing cooler than old people in love, right? I think that's great. Um, in, this, in this document, she also did individual photos their individual stories, and so she went through and kind of uh, grabbed a couple photos, like baby pictures of her for when she was an infant, small child, teenager, and so forth, and also present-day photos. And then Lynn said, all right, here's, here's what you have to look forward to, Mike, as I get older. This is what Lynn thinks she'll be like when she's 85. This is what I've got coming. If that isn't awesome, I don't know what is. Particularly love the curlers. And then uh, in similar fashion, she grabs some of my baby photos, some of my teenage photos, some of my present day, and this is what Lynn thinks uh, she's going to be getting when I'm 85. (laughs) Awesome. I particularly love the shoulder hair. I think that's great. Well, it becomes clear as we look at the aging process that we have to take uh, how our bodies change over time kind of in stride. We've got to be a little lighthearted about it and I'm I'm grateful that we've got the chuckles in the room this morning. I think that's appropriate because that's the right tone we're going to need to have approaching today. Solomon's tone is slightly different. We're going to look into Ecclesiastes today at, at chapter 12 and you're going to see that this is actually, the whole chapter is on aging. And Solomon's tone is a lot more serious. It's a lot more straightforward and sober. There's not the lightheartedness that we were just experiencing looking at some photos. He's much more matter-of-fact and plain-spoken. And as you know, when you go through your Bible, like if you go from one chapter to the next to the next, sometimes uh, when you look at the chapter of the Bible, there'll be like a little one-phrase synopsis of what that chapter is all about. Some of our Bibles will kind of give an overview of the chapter in a couple words or in a sentence. A lot of the common Commentators do that as well, and they'll kind of give you a synopsis of what the chapter is. And here's what a couple of the commentators said about Ecclesiastes 12. This is how they sum it up in a few words. Live responsibly before the miseries of old age come. Another one said, remember God before gloom and decay set in. Really? Really? You know, really uplifting stuff, you know? Uh, I'm not sure if these commentators just need a little more fun in their life, or if this is honest reporting about Ecclesiastes 12. I think we'll be the judge of this this morning as we dive into the text, okay? Now, as we segue into the text, we're going to look at that right now, I want to remind you that Ecclesiastes 12 is going to follow immediately on the heels of Ecclesiastes 11. And you're like, whoa, riveting comment, great insight, I'm glad we got you up there this morning, Mike, well done. Yes, let me explain that comment just for a second here. Whenever you see a change in chapter going from 9 to 10, 10 to 11, and so forth, there's times in the Bible when the chapter change suggests a departure of thought. We were talking about this, and now we're going to switch gears, and we're now going to talk about this. And there's times when there's a true departure of the thought process when you see the chapters change. That is not what you're going to see going from 11 to 12. What you need to remember about our Bibles, it's true, is that the chapters and verses, they weren't added into the text until the 1500s by a French monk. Uh, They weren't part of the original text. The chapters and verses that you see in your Bible, they basically function as like a GPS system to help you to get to where you need to be in the Scripture. That's all it does, okay? And sometimes they do mark a departure of thought. In Ecclesiastes 12, it's just purely a continuation of where we were in 11. And so because of that, I'm going to tee up 12 by just revisiting the last two verses of Ecclesiastes 11, if that's okay. So just take a half step back with me if you can. And let's start at 11 verse 9. Solomon says, rejoice young man during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Solomon is is saying, go follow the impulses of your heart. He's saying, go for it. Those desires of your eyes, go after them. But he's also saying, don't be stupid about it. He reminds us that God will bring to judgment all of these decisions that you make, right? So don't be stupid about it, right? He goes on in verse 10 to say, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting, this is almost a foreshadowing statement of where he's going to go next with his thought process and description. This is kind of our stepping off point from 11 to 12. Childhood and the prime of your life, these are fleeting, all right? They are not going to last long. Now, switch over to 12.1 and we'll, we'll segue into today. In 12 verse 1, Solomon says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. right? He's saying those cool things you want to do when you're younger, those impulses of your heart, those desires of your eyes, go do them now. The time to do them is right now because there is a time that is coming when you will either not be able to follow those desires or you will no longer want to. Now, as I was reading through this, I had a, uh, a picture that came to my mind of a movie I had seen a number of years ago with my kids. Um, I, I think the, uh, the movie studio Pixar just makes some delightful films, and I had in my head a, the prologue to the Pixar movie Up. How many of you have seen Up before? Can I see your hands? Oh, then you guys will totally know where I'm going with this. The prologue to this movie starts with about a five-minute intro where there's a a young girl who meets a young guy, and she's just crazy spunky, full of energy, the zest of life, and he's just kind of following her, and all that she wants to do, he's just kind of following along for the ride. And anyways, um, they get married. And uh, they have this, this picture of what they want to do, this adventure they want to go on. And they've got this image, this picture of, of the adventure they want to do, but they've got to pay for it. So they lay out a jar in their house. And every time they walk by the jar, they put some money in the jar. And you can tell they're kind of funding this adventure. And the jar builds up and builds up and builds up. And then one day, a tree falls on the house. Wham! And you see in the next scene, they're kind, they're kind of sad. And they've got to break the jar to be able to pay for the house repair. All right, so now that money goes for the house. Next scene, the jar's back in place. They're walking by the jar. Again, every time they pass it, they drop a coin in the jar. And then a few moments later, you see the car has broken down. Smash. They've got to break the jar. Got to pay for the car repair, right? A couple scenes later, the jar's in place again, building up, building up, building up, building up. But all of a sudden now, they're older. She's in the hospital, and they've got to pay for her medical bills. Smash jar gets busted and they've got to use the funds for their adventure to go pay for the medical bills that's how life is isn't it for all of us well then the it advances a couple moments later and now they're old he's like 70 or 80 something he's gray he's not walking quite right he's in the house and he's dusting the fireplace mantle and the picture of their adventure is on the fireplace mantle he's looking at it and he's like oh my gosh we never did this So he takes the picture down. He brings it over to his wife, and he's like, hey, hey, we got to go do this now. And she's got gray hair, glasses, hair back in a bun. She's rocking in the rocking chair, and she's like, "Mm mm-mm. She can no longer even do it. And that was what they had planned for and looked forward to with so much energy, and the time came when they could no longer do it. I think that's what Solomon is saying in chapter 12, verse 1 okay let's keep moving on verse 2 remember the launching point here was remember your creator there's an admonition right remember your creator verse 2 before the sun and the light the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain verse 2 Solomon is sort of likening uh, the troubles of old age to a gathering storm uh, where both night and day are darkened by clouds and then after the rain falls the storm clouds return again Right, so he's saying that while we're young, right, there is time for the sky to clear, right? There will be sunny days again amidst the storms of life. But he says when we're older, we will suffer one trouble after another without a whole lot of time to recover. And you need to remember that throughout Scripture, we even saw this last week in, in uh, chapter 11. Throughout Scripture, uh, youthfulness and life, they're often depicted metaphorically as light, And pending death or coming death is often referred to as the approaching darkness. And this uh, particular verse is exactly using that same thread of metaphor that we see throughout Scripture. Solomon is forecasting for gloomy skies and for clouds to be coming. He's warning us of the approach of death. Moving on to verse 3. Solomon says, In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, the mighty men stoop. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through the windows grow dim. Some commentators, when I read uh, this, they thought that Solomon was using kind of metaphorical language to suggest that as we age, our bodies are kind of like an estate, a really grand estate. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen Downton Abbey, but that's the kind of thing that comes to my mind, a really grand house with lots of visitors, servants, guests coming and going, hustle and bustle of life, there's grinding mills making food all the time on the premises, and saying that as we age, then the activity is less, the grinding mill slows down, there's fewer people looking out the windows. Some commentators thought that the metaphor of the estate was exactly what Solomon was suggesting. Other commentators, though, thought that this was metaphorical language of a different kind. And they thought that the language choice or the word choice in verse uh, 3 is actually talking about physiological metaphors of what our bodies experience when we age. And the more I read Ecclesiastes 12, I thought the second group of commentators was more accurate. Let me explain what I mean by that. When Solomon says that the watchmen of the house tremble, well, what in your body begins to tremble as you get older? What starts to tremble? Your hands, right? These are your watchmen, Solomon is saying. They begin to tremble. He says, the mighty men stoop. Well, what are the mighty men? What in your body stands tall and proud when you're younger, but begins to stoop as you get older? Any ideas? Your shoulders. Some commentators thought it might be your legs, but again, they begin to stoop as you get older. And then he says, the grinding ones cease. Because they are few. Who are the grinding ones? Or what are the grinding ones on your body? Your teeth. And he said, why do they grind less? Because they are few. Okay. Now, we may not relate to this in you know, 2018 uh, modern America. Why? Because we can go to a dentist and we can get a cap on a tooth that goes bad. We can get a crown to replace a tooth completely. If you've had wholesale bad uh, teeth experience, you can get dentures. Why not swap them all out, right? But we can replace teeth as they go bad. Could Solomon do this in 950 BC? Absolutely not. Okay? In fact, you can probably appreciate you know, when he says the grinding ones cease or they are idle because they are few, how many old people even today with the luxuries of modern dentistry have to make slightly different food choices than the rest of us because they're aware of teeth sensitivities, right? I don't think the elderly among us probably have a robust consumption of candied apples, for example, or kettle corn. Um, there are some food decisions we've got to make a little bit differently, just because of the fact that our our teeth are no longer what they used to be when we were younger. Um, I've been to South Sudan a number of times, and uh, even again today, 2018, if I look at the elderly population in South Sudan, where there are no dentists, where we go in Vietnam, South Sudan, these people don't have a whole lot of grinding ones left. Their diets are a little different than the rest of the people in the village. He goes on in verse 3 to talk about those who look through the windows grow dim. What are the windows of life for all of us? What are they? They're our eyes, aren't they, right? How many of you have noticed as you're getting older that your eyesight's getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse? Any people? I'm seeing a few nods, a few hands. Very honest group this morning, I love that. I used to make fun of the people in my uh, community group when we'd go out for dinner at, to a restaurant. Um, we would, for whatever reason, have it was more of the older folks in our community group on one side of the table, and they universally would read their menus like this, and it was quite a sight, because they would all read them like this, and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You guys look hilarious. You know, it's not good to mock people, but I had some good spirited fun, pointing a finger and uh, enjoying what I was watching and taking pictures of them who can't read a menu very near. And darn it if now I'm not in the club, right? I also am going, well, what's wrong with these menus? Why can't they just improve the font on these things? And I'm removing my glasses and holding them at different distances. We can't escape it. Our eyesight changes as we get older, right? Well, where does he go from here? Verse 4, Solomon is going to say, the doors on the street are shut, As the sound of the grinding mill is low, and just advance slightly, he also says that the daughters of song will sing softly. All of verse 4 are hearing metaphors. The doors on the street being shut refers to our ears. The sound of the grinding mill being low. You can't change how loud or how soft a grinding mill is. When you grind, it makes a certain sound, but it sounds low, right? The daughters of song will sing softly. It's just because we can't hear them the same. Right? All of us are hearing changes as we get older. Same thing. Now, there's an interesting little sidebar in verse 4 that I think Solomon uh, draws attention to. and It's a curious one for me. He says that uh, one will arise at the sound of a bird. Okay? How many of you, as you get older, you find it harder and harder to sleep in? Am I the only one that's experiencing that? Okay. I remember um, when we moved to Tennessee a number of years ago, my wife picked up the phone one morning at 8.15 to call her mom who lives in San Jose, California. It was 8.15 in Tennessee. I'm like, babe, what are you doing? It's 6.15 there. She's like, oh, she's up. I'm like, really? She's like, oh yeah, she's been up for a while. I'm like, come on, you're retired. Of course you're sleeping when you're retired. She's like, no, she's up. Sure enough, And I found as I get older and older, I have lost my ability to sleep in completely and I feel robbed by that. You get a Saturday when you can sleep in and now your body's like, your eyes pop open as soon as you hear that first sound in the morning. It's weird right? When I was younger, I could sleep in like a baby. I could, I could fall asleep at 10 or 11 at night with the lights in my room on, my music on high. I could fall asleep and stay asleep like that. It was incredible, right? My parents even told me a story of a time when the smoke detector in our house, it went off right outside my room. Beep, 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 beep. Didn't hear it at all. It didn't disturb my sleep, And I was one of those kids who had a paper route when I was younger. I delivered papers door-to-door, and I'd have to get up at, you know, 5.15 in the morning to do that. My alarm would go off right beside my bed, and I wouldn't hear it. My parents' bedroom was right above mine. Sometimes my dad would get out of bed and go like this to try to wake me up because I couldn't hear my alarm that was right there, right? But now, as Solomon says, man, as soon as that first bird makes a sound in the morning, my eyes are open and my day's begun, Right? I, just, I don't know why, but my sleep changes. Even despite the fact um, that I have more time to sleep in on weekends and such now, I, I'm up with the birds at 5.15, and it's a frustration. So I'm not sure how many of you can relate to that, but my sleep in button is gone. And again, the elderly folks that I know, they seem to be early risers uniformly. Uh, they're often up at 5.30 or 6, getting their day going. All right, verse 5. Solomon goes on to say, furthermore, he says, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Have you noticed how young people very rarely consider their safety? In fact, they often engage in reckless and even sometimes dangerous behaviors without giving it a whole lot of thought, right? But their grandparents, however, they always feel somewhat unsafe, right? Uh, If you're grandparents or your parents, these are the people who now sometimes will start paying other folks to climb a ladder at their house and do things at their house. It's no longer something that they feel comfortable doing. Uh, And a high place, it doesn't need to be 10 feet or 20 feet up in the air. Sometimes a high place can simply be standing vertical, right? I don't want to overstate this, but my wife visited her mom in San Jose just a week and a half ago. She flew out there on a Saturday to find that her mom had just gotten back from the emergency room the day before. Her mom was walking around the outside of her house and just tripped, just fell. She'd done this walk a, a thousand times, but then on that particular day she fell. And she tried to stop her fall, but she still had hit the ground and had a massive gash right here, huge, all black and blue, had to get glued shut her hands are all purple from the bruising, she just fell. And that's the realities of getting older, is that sometimes, sometimes standing vertical just feels high, right? Um, you know, as we think about our parents and our grandparents, they no longer really long for that two-story and three-story house, right? That single-story house is, is plenty. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna have any more risk of falling than I absolutely need. You know Solomon talks about the terrors on the road. Well, what about the terrors of the house? You know, I think our parents and grandparents start thinking about that. Verse five. This is going to start to uh, be a little bit more spunky. Uh, Solomon says the almond tree blossoms. He says the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. Well, does anyone, anyone want to guess what the color of flower? What the color of the flower is on an almond tree? What color are the blossoms of these flowers? Any guesses? They're white. So Solomon says, as you age, you begin to blossom white flowers. What is he saying? Yes. We can look around. You guys are not quite as gray as the first service, but we saw a few almond trees blossoming in the nine o'clock service. You guys are a little more youthful in this service, but Solomon is saying, as we get older, we start to blossom white, right? Now... Uh, just being very transparent, I would love to blossom white flowers. My reality is that my flowers are not blossoming. They're actually falling off the darn tree, and I would prefer to retain my flowers more than anything right now, okay? Uh, For men, there's kind of a cruel joke that kicks in with this. While I I can't hold onto my flowers on top of my head to save my life right now, I've got robust hair growth in places I don't want it, and I don't need it, all right? Um, To my great dismay, my back and my shoulders have got really great hair growth right now. My ears, they look like they're preparing for a cold winter, and my nose looks like I snorted a cat. I know we're supposed to give thanks to the Lord for all of our wonderful blessings, and I want to be grateful to him for all these cool upgrades, but quite frankly, I'd trade all of them for a little more on the top deck right now. Okay, I kind of feel like maybe God's mocking me for all the time I spent in the, with the menu thing with my friends. Maybe he's getting back at me right now. I don't know. but. That's the hair growth. Um, my, my wife and I were in the library in her house uh, about a month ago, and there's a, there's a photo on the wall in my library of the day that we got engaged. And man, I had so much cool hair in that photo. And I'm sitting uh, next to my wife, and I'm, like, and I'm going, babe, I'm sorry. And she's like, no worries. I, I, I met your father. I, I knew what was coming. And I'm like, well, okay, yeah, I guess you could kind of see the, the road or the trajectory I was gonna be on. Um, But I got to tell you, with my hair growth trending right now, I'm going to be looking like that picture that was put up of me that Lynn had envisioned when I was 85. So, all right, let's keep going. Solomon also says the grasshopper drags himself along. What does that mean? Well, picture a grasshopper. They're very agile creatures, strong, powerful legs, incredibly athletic creatures. Well, when we get older, our muscles shrink, our joints no longer quite work the way they used to. They're stiff, right? Sometimes our muscles are imbalanced. I've got a, a guy I know in my life who's about 90 years old, and when, he, when you look at him, his shoulders are kind of like this, and he walks kind of like this. He gets along just fine, but he sure doesn't look like the youthful grasshopper he was a long time ago. As we age, our bodies just change. The, they're different, right? And Solomon goes on to say that the caper berry is ineffective. What on earth does that mean? Well, I looked it up. Turns out, my friends, that the caperberry is basically Old Testament Viagra. The caperberry is ineffective. Moving on. <laughs> We're going to skip the latter part of verse five. I'll come back to that in just a jiffy. Let's go on to verse six. Verse six says, "Remember him before the silver cord is broken." And the golden bowl is crushed, and the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed, right? Um, Some commentators think that the silver cord is a reference to our spinal cord, right? If you were to actually look at a cadaver, you'd find that your spinal cord actually has kind of a grayish tone to it, right? The, The golden bowl, some commentators think, is it would be our cranium or our skull. And when he says the wheel at the cistern, what does that mean? Well, a cistern, you might know, of course, is a place where you draw water. The cistern is the place of water. The wheel of the cistern is that pulley system that comes down, grabs water, brings it up again, comes down, grabs water, brings it up again. The wheel of the cistern is that which moves water around. What moves the water around in your body? Your heart, right? So this is a metaphor for the heart. The heart. And it's interesting in verse 6 that Solomon brings back the admonition that we saw in verse 1. Remember your creator when, right? Remember your creator before, right? He's, He's bringing this back because these are significant things in your body that can go wrong. Yeah, we can grow gray hair. Yeah, we can lose our sight. Yeah, our hearing can fade. No big deal. Inconvenience, nothing major, right? I can lose a finger I'm okay. I can lose in my ear. I'm okay. But if my silver bowl is crushed, right? Or my uh, silver cord is severed, right? Or my wheel of the cistern locks up, I'm done. These are life ending injuries or things that, that can go wrong with your body. And that's why Solomon reintroduces the significance of this by saying, remember your creator when, or remember your creator. I think whenever we read through the Bible, we always, uh, we always look at it through our own personal lenses, and I think you can't help but uh, sort of uh, transpose your own story over top of the words of Scripture when you read them, and my mind went when I was looking at verse 6 to my father, um, because about seven or eight years ago, he was playing ping pong uh, at an elderly uh, living community uh, with a number of friends. He was in Yuma, Arizona, and playing ping pong in a kind of a roundabout tournament. My dad was never very good at ping pong and I think he was working on it that night because I always beat the pants off my dad whenever we played ping pong and I think that made him angry. And I had this vision of my dad practicing his game so he could take on his kid one more time. Well this particular night my dad was playing ping pong and in the middle of a match he fell to the floor. He had a heart attack. And his opponent in this game was a retired EMT, a guy who'd worked on an ambulance for 25 years. The EMT immediately started working on my dad to revive him or to try to revive him, but he was gone. Done. At 69 years old, my dad had a massive heart attack, and he had breathed his last. The EMT, his opponent, had uh, told, told me that your dad was probably dead by the time he hit the floor. Just a massive stoppage. His cistern, wheeled the cistern, just locked up, and it was done. End of life. Those are sobering thoughts for me. You know, that's a number of years ago now. I've kind of, I've walked that road emotionally. But I don't think my dad woke up that morning anticipating that that would be his last day. I don't think any of us wake up in the morning and think, this is probably the last day of my life. I think there's sometimes when we get noticed that that's coming and there's times where it blindsides us. But none of us know when that last day will be. And I want you to be mindful of that in the back of your head as we go through this text this morning because that brings a certain perspective, I think, for all of us. Let's go on to verse 7. Solomon talking about the end of life coming. If, if any of the, the golden bowl or the silver cord or the wheel at the cistern is crushed, he says, when any of those things falter, he says in verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it, And I want to bring back in that part of verse five that I skipped over. He says, For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Before I delve too far into this uh, particular verse, I want to acknowledge something. We've spent 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. And as Eric mentioned this morning, there's been a bit of a drumbeat, right? Vanity of vanities. It's all vapor, it's all meaningless. Solomon has been surveying his life's accomplishments. Here's a guy who's gone farther than anybody else, right? He's got more money than anybody, and he calls it meaningless. He's undertaken incredible building projects. Ah, it's vanity, emptiness. He's smarter than anyone else who's ever lived. Yeah, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, right? Pursued, gone after gratification for all the desires of his eyes. He's like, yeah, emptiness, emptiness meaningless, emptiness, nothingness, vanity, who cares? Throughout all of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is looking at the ground, looking all around horizontally at what he's accomplishing. He says it doesn't amount to anything. It's all empty. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse seven, for the first time in the book, he's not looking down, he's looking up. And he says there's more. He says we will go and return to the God who created us. We will go to our eternal home. Now, it also says that when that happens, that mourners will go about in the streets. So let's talk about that for a second. When you die, when you breathe your last breath, your body begins the process of being returned to the earth. Right? You were made from dust, Genesis 2-7. You will return to dust. It's inescapable. Sometimes it's quick. Sometimes it's slow. Your body will become dust. That's not news to you. And when that happens... Uh, the, a group of people will assemble here collectively referred to as the mourners in the street and we're going to get together at a church or at a funeral home and we're going to tell stories about you and we're going to remember you and we're going to play your favorite songs and we're going to share your favorite stories and it's going to be a great celebration of your life and all everyone who knows you and loves you will gather and it'll be a wonderful time right and we'll all go out I'll go out to Chewy's afterwards and eat Mexican food right but where will you be on that day where will you be? You see, there may be a body in the casket that's being honored at that funeral, but while you your body will be there, you won't be. You see, Solomon is very clear here that our spirit returns to God who gave it, and man goes to his eternal home. Paul makes it very clear in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5:8, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My friends, This body, it's temporary. This home that we live in right now, you're just passing through. You're on a journey, and this is just a temporary stop. Our true home is our eternal home on the other side in heaven. And Solomon, with limited knowledge here because he's pre-Christ, is trying to sketch this out for us. Now, a fuller revelation of this would come to pass when Jesus would walk this earth and when he'd he'd minister for a few years, he'd actually talk quite often about the kingdom of heaven and what that would look like. And in John chapter 14, Jesus just shares a little bit about this. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. He says, If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there now to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says, our home is on the other side. I'm making room for you and I will come back and I will get you. I think this text puts us on a collision course with a question that we can't avoid this morning. How confident are you about your eternal destiny right now? How confident are you about where you will spend your eternity based on how you feel right now? You have no guarantees you're going to make it home today. Not one. We think we will. The odds probably seem pretty darn good. You've been to church many times before. I'll probably get home today, no problem. But you don't have any assurances of that. My dad certainly didn't. That night he played ping pong, it caught him by surprise, I suspect. What you need to recognize is that there is a day that's coming where you will breathe your last. And Solomon reminds us in chapter 11 that there is a day of reckoning that comes with that. Solomon reminds us that there is a day coming when we will stand before our creator and we will give an account for our life. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9. And you will, make an, you will make a defense. You will give an explanation for the choices you made, for the decisions you made, for the actions you had, the actions you did. And Jesus even says, for the thoughts that you had. They're all laid bare before your Creator. And you have some splaining to do on that day. Well, I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard that at 21, it kind of shook me. It didn't strike me as good news. Because I knew in the life that I had lived up into that time, there was a lot of things I had done in my life that I wasn't very proud of. In fact, I was downright ashamed of. And I knew if God, even if he graded on a curve, it was gonna be a really bad day for me if I had to stand in front of a heavenly judge and give an account for my life. I was, I was not proud of the life I had lived. Maybe you've lived a better life than I have, I don't know. But I think if all of us were honest this morning, we would say that if we had to stand before a heavenly creator and in front of a holy judge And he would examine our life and all of our deeds, decisions, choices, things we have done and things we chose not to do. I think all of us would agree that that would be a pretty awful examination on that day. I call that bad news. Now, the good news is that there's one person who's lived who not only survived that heavenly examination of his life, but he also offers you his credentials. His name is Jesus he lived about 2,000 years ago. He lived a life completely without sin. That means there was nothing he had done throughout his entire life for which he need be ashamed. And when the heavenly judge examined his life, he said, approved. And this Jesus, when he died, he offers you the gift of his life for yours. It's an exchange. He will take on your sinful life upon himself and he offers you his perfection. 1 Timothy 2.5 in the New Testament says, For there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. John 1.12 said, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10.9 and 10 says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Jesus himself said during his ministry, talking about his role in this this, uh, judgment process, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. My friends, the offer of forgiveness for your sins, the offer of salvation so that you can pass that heavenly examination, it's a gift. It doesn't cost you a penny, but the reality of a gift, even a free one, is that it has to be not only offered to you, but accepted in order for it to be yours. And if you have less than 100% certainty regarding where you would spend your eternity on this day, if you did not make it home today, but Jesus took you home or your God called you home and you had to stand before a heavenly judge, if you do not have 100% certainty that you would pass that examination, it's because you haven't made your life right with Christ and we'll make an opportunity for you to get that right today before we leave, okay? Do yourself a favor. If you haven't made this decision, stop messing around. The stakes are simply too high to be casual about this. There is a day coming when you will no longer have the opportunity to make that choice. Now, as we wind down our time together, uh, I want to share a poem with you. And this poem was shared with me on Facebook uh, a couple weeks ago, and when I saw it, I thought it was perfect for our time today in Ecclesiastes 12. I thought about just reciting the poem to you personally, but I felt that the author of this poem actually does a better job conveying the meaning of this poem, and so I'm going to invite our distinguished author to share this poem with you. As she does that, I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up, because they'll be leading us out in song in just a little bit. So go ahead and cue our our poet.
1: I looked in the mirror, and what did I see? but a little old lady peering back at me with bags and sags and wrinkles and wispy white hair, and I asked my reflection, How did you get there? You once were straight and vigorous, and now you're stooped and weak when I try so hard to keep you from becoming an antique. My reflection's eyes twinkled, and she solemnly replied, you're looking at the gift wrap and not the jewel inside a living gem and precious of unimagined worth unique and true the real you the only you on earth the years that spoil your gift wrap with other things more cruel should purify and strengthen and polish up that jewel so focus your attention on the inside not the out on being kinder wiser, more content, and more devout. Then, when your gift wrap stripped away, your jewel will be set free to radiate God's glory throughout eternity.
0: Death has a way of bringing incredible clarity in some senses. Um, Think about if you were to uh, know that today was your last day. There wasn't going to be an earthly tomorrow for you. You were going to die and you were going to be with your creator today. My question for you is what regret would you have? What regrets would kind of haunt you if you knew today was your last day? Some of us put things off that we know we need to attend to. Because we just think that there's an unlimited number of tomorrows. But the reality is that there is a limited number of them. And we don't really know when that last day will be. I spent time over the years wondering what my dad would have regretted uh, without knowing that that was his last day. What decisions would he have made differently in light of his earthly days coming to an end? If you were laying on your deathbed tonight and you knew you're about to meet your creator, what would give you some anxiety? What would feel undone to you? Some of you might think about that adventure that you never went on with your family. Some of you might think about that relationship that you never repaired, right? Where there's a falling out between a couple people who loved each other, but you never never went back to seek forgiveness or to offer it and to pursue reconciliation. Some of you undoubtedly will think about that person with whom you've never shared the love of Christ. My friends, be mindful about the things you would regret if this was your last day. And then my challenge to you is what are you going to do about it? How are you going to live differently in light of that? Because our reality is that we should be living every day as if it were our last because we never know when that might be the case. Would you pray with me? Lord, I don't want to live with regret. Lord, I want to live each day as though it were my last because the reality is that it might be. I know I don't have any assurances of an earthly tomorrow. And in light of that, Lord, would you help me to keep short accounts in the things in life that matter most? May I be bold and willing to take a risk in the areas of my life where I have felt fear or hesitation or procrastination putting things off to a future date that need to be attended to. Lord, would you give me the courage to attend to these things that I know I would regret if I left them unresolved before I died? And Lord, I pray for those in this room who don't have certainty regarding where they will spend their eternity. Lord, I know the biggest regret we could all have unmistakably would be if we never made ourselves right with you before we died. We know that we will stand before our creator on the day of our death to give an account for our lives and that we do not have a chance of passing that examination. Lord, I pray for those right now who have not made a decision for you that they would join me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, I recognize before you that I am sinful. I know that there are things in my life that I have done that I regret that are wrong, and that these sins separate me from a holy God. And I'm told that you have offered your Son. In place for my life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. And your word also says that all we need to do is confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. I confess to you this morning, Jesus, that you are Lord and I believe that God raised you from the dead on that third day so that your life may be a substitute for my own. Though I may not understand how it works, I accept this great gift that you offer and I'm grateful that you are willing to offer it to me. Jesus, I pray for those that this would be a day of salvation for them and we ask, Lord, that you would come in and begin the process of creating a brand new reborn life. In your wonderful name we pray, amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, tell somebody. Tell the person you came with today. Tell the people up front here who'd be glad to pray with you afterwards, but make it known for there's incredible rejoicing in heaven when there is one sinner who returns to God. Have a wonderful Sunday. pray, pray you'd be blessed for the rest of this day.